Good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View. Thanks for joining us for worship. Last week, we started a new sermon series in 1 Peter, a letter written to the elect exiles of several different churches near the Black Sea. These Christians are elect in the sense that they've been chosen and approved by God, not through anything they had to offer, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for them. But at the same time, they're exiles. They're exiles in the sense that the world has rejected them, disapproves of them. And that, too, comes back to Jesus Christ, what they believe and teach about him specifically. So as these believers strive to live faithfully to Christ in a world that is hostile to them, Peter does a few different things. First, he reminds them of who they are, children of God a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Second, Peter encourages them to press on in this living hope because they have a reward waiting for them, an inheritance that will never go away, never be defiled, and will never fade. And then third, Peter challenged them to fulfill the calling that God has given them. They are to be holy as God is holy. They are to be holy as Christ is holy. And they are holy because Jesus' death and resurrection has made them holy. His blood has set them apart. So even though this world will reject them, alienate them, mock them, and even exile them, nothing can change the fact that they are loved and embraced by God. And the same goes for believers today. Though we might be looked upon as undesirables or outcasts, We are loved and embraced by God. And in the eternal scheme of things, that's really all that matters. Because one day this world will wither like grass. So with all that stuff in mind, we as believers press on. We proclaim the excellencies of Christ who shed his precious blood for us. And we do this all with confidence. We do it with joy. Knowing that we are not just any exiles, we are elect. Exiles. So this morning we pick up right where Peter left off in chapter 2. Peter refers to these believers as sojourners. Some translations may say strangers. We're people far away from home. People who don't truly belong in this world, at least as we currently see it. And yet again, Peter challenges us to be holy. But particularly in times of hardship, injustice, and pain. Because holiness, especially when times are bad, is one of the greatest forms of evangelism. Holiness in the midst of suffering is one of the best ways that we as believers can proclaim the excellencies of Christ. So open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the reminder we heard from your word last week that we are elect exiles. Even though so many people might reject us or disown us or insult us because of our faith in Christ, we are loved and embraced by you. And we are so grateful for that. But again, we're not loved and embraced by you because we're good. 
We're not loved and embraced by you because we're moral. We're loved and embraced by you because your son died. In and of ourselves, we are sinners. We fall short. And yet you love us. And it all comes back to the cross. So, Father, we are so grateful for your son. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who marks us as your people, who sanctifies us and grows us and matures us. Thank you for your church, this group of believers, this ragtag band of believers who so often have little in common, and yet we are brothers and sisters in your family. And Father, thank you for your word that we have the privilege of reading this morning. I pray that you would give us ears to hear what it is that you have to say. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in your son's name. Let's begin by reading 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter tells these believers, these strangers, to be holy. Specifically, he warns them to abstain from fleshly passion. And how different that is from the message we often receive today. The message we receive today is to indulge and fulfill whatever desire, whatever passion you have. And that if you don't fulfill that desire or that passion, you're actually harming yourself. But Peter tells us it's the exact opposite. That those passions, those desires are waging war against your soul. They do not have your best interest in mind. And so Peter tells us to flee from it, to be holy. Now last week when he told us to be holy, Peter cited Leviticus chapter 19 verse 2. A core Old Testament passage where God tells the Israelites that they are to be holy because he is holy. Last week, Peter highlighted the holiness of Christ, referring to him as the lamb without blemish or spot. But then here, Peter gives us yet another reason to be holy, yet another motivation to be holy. Not just because God the Father is holy, not just because Jesus the Son is holy, but he tells us to be holy for the sake of our public witness, for the sake of our reputation amongst those who do not believe in Christ. As he said in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, a.k.a. those people who don't believe in Christ, keep your conduct among them honorable. Now let's say you do that. You keep your conduct honorable. Well, Peter still warns us that non-believers could say terrible things about us. And if you look in the pages of history, Peter was right. Various writings from the first century contain all kinds of awful accusations against Christians. They were often accused of secretly murdering people in their church gatherings. People didn't understand why these people get together in secrecy and have these weird worship services. They were accused sometimes of cannibalism because people didn't understand the symbolic practice of communion. They thought they were truly, really eating people. They were accused of trying to overthrow the government. Because they refuse to worship the emperor. It's true that non-believers may say terrible things about you. 
In today's world, that still remains the case. As a believer in Christ, you could be accused of all kinds of things. Bigotry, closed-mindedness, too traditional, too uptight, being on the wrong side of history. And in our day and age, those accusations might as well be accusations of murder and cannibalism and treason. But the believer's best defense against those who slander us is holiness. People may say all kinds of bad things about you because you're a Christian. And some people might even believe them. But Peter's advice is not to get angry, not to get defensive. Peter's guidance is to let your holiness do the talking. And Peter says that maybe, just maybe, those people who once vilified you and insulted you and accused you of all kinds of terrible things, they might just end up glorifying God because of you and because of your holiness, your example. So are you concerned about the things that non-believers might say about you because you're a Christian? Do you ever sit back and wonder how you should respond if those accusations start to fly? Well, Peter says the best response you can offer is holiness. Because holiness speaks louder than words. Your words or their words. Now, of course, that all sounds good on paper, but how does this look in real life? How does this play play itself out in normal, everyday circumstances? Well, Peter gives us three different examples of what this holiness can look like. He gives us three different social contexts to consider. Number one, our relationship with large-scale institutions. Number two, the example of a slave's relationship with his master. And then number three, the example of marriage, the relationship between a wife and her husband. So let's look at the first example, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. We read there, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So the first example of institutions, Peter is mainly referring to government, emperors, governors. Now, very few people these days think very highly of formal, organized institutions. And government ranks near the very bottom of that list. But what makes this passage even worse is that Peter's not just talking about government, but he's also telling us to submit to these institutions. But he's getting at the exact same thing he mentioned in verses 11 and 12. He's not telling these believers to blindly submit to the emperor and governors just because they're in charge. He's telling these believers to let their holiness do the talking in order that the ignorant, foolish people who accuse these Christians of awful things would be proven wrong and that God would ultimately be glorified. The best thing that these exiles can do, according to Peter, 
The best way that they can proclaim the excellencies of Christ to their society's institutions is to simply be good citizens. But even more specifically, to be thoroughly Christian citizens in a world that might be hostile to You think back to the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 29. The Israelites find themselves in rock bottom. They've lost everything. They're in Babylon. They're far away from home. They've lost their freedoms. They've lost much of their culture. They seem to have lost it all. And so the prophet Jeremiah rides to these exiles, wasting away in Babylon, and he gives them guidance of how they should conduct themselves. And God says to these Israelites in Jeremiah 29, verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God tells the Israelites to be holy citizens of the place where they have found themselves. Even though the place they have found themselves isn't always accepting them. So we too as believers can bring God great glory and send a wonderful positive message to the non-believers around us simply by being good citizens. Simply by being thoroughly Christian citizens. In that same context of Jeremiah 29, we see the prophet Daniel. And Daniel bent over backward to submit to his pagan superiors as best as he possibly could. You think about the early church immediately following the time of Christ. The best Roman emperors are those who let Christians live in relative peace. And those emperors often let the Christians live in peace because they knew that the Christians would pray for them. They knew the Christians would pray for Rome. They were simply good, holy citizens. And that sent a positive message. Now, of course, there's a time and place for God's people to defy these institutions. After all, Daniel submitted to his pagan superiors, but he did not worship them. The early Christians prayed for the emperor and prayed for Rome, but they didn't offer sacrifices to the emperor. They didn't call him a god. When human institutions are operating as God intends, punishing evil and praising good, then submission and holiness will come a lot easier. But Peter's saying that even when they're wicked, we are still called to hope. Because ultimately, we're serving God, not them. So that's example number one. Example number two is seen in 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing 
in the sight of God. So first we see institutions, emperors, governors, government. But then here we see the context of slavery, a tough context to read about. But in this example, Peter gives some revolutionary guidance. First of all, it's revolutionary in that slaves were very rarely addressed in any ancient writings. They didn't get letters. They were often ignored. They weren't worth the pen and paper it took to write a letter because they were just slaves. But when Peter writes this letter to slaves, he treats them as siblings in the family of God. He treats them as though they have equal footing with any other believer because they do. But what's even more mind-boggling here is Peter's guidance for them. He tells these Christian slaves to submit to their masters, even if their masters are evil. He argues that suffering injustice because of holiness is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, where in the world would Peter get that kind of crazy idea? What slave in their right mind would voluntarily submit themselves to a wicked master? What slave in their right mind would voluntarily subject themselves to suffering? Well, Peter gets this crazy idea from none other than the example of Christ. And we'll see that here in a few minutes. Think about the book of Acts, specifically Acts chapter 5. There's a story where Peter and the apostles are out in the public square, preaching Christ, and the religious leaders hear about it. They're angry, they're frustrated, they bring these Christians in, they threaten them, they tell them to be quiet, and the apostles refuse. They say they would rather obey God than men. And so they beat these apostles, they physically harm them, kick them back out into public, but then look what the apostles do. Acts chapter 5, verse 41 Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's bizarre, isn't it? These apostles were physically beaten, and yet they rejoiced. They voluntarily subject themselves to suffering, and yet they're happy about it. That seems pretty weird. This idea of suffering injustice for the sake of holiness in the name of Christ, it sounds pretty ridiculous, doesn't it? Suffering, pain, and discomfort tend to be viewed pretty poorly today. That nothing good could ever possibly come from them. And that they are to be avoided at all costs. And why would a Christian willingly suffer at the hands of the wicked rather than stand up for themselves? Rather than fight for their rights? Because that's what Christ did. And because holiness, especially in times of hardship, is one of the best ways to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And sending a message about who Christ is to those who oppose us is far more important and far more valuable than our own comfort. But then finally, example number three. First Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, 
the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So first was institutions, second was slaves and masters, and here we see the example of marriage. Now in context, Peter is talking about wives with unbelieving husbands, those husbands who do not obey the word. But his guidance can certainly apply the other way around as well. You could have a believing husband whose wife does not obey the word. So what's the best way to proclaim the excellencies of Christ to your unbelieving spouse? It's the same answer Peter's already given. Holiness. Your holiness will have a far deeper, far longer lasting impact than external superficial things that we tend to focus on. That's why he talks about hair and jewelry and clothes. Holiness is much better than any of those things. Maybe the most famous example of this comes in the life of St. Augustine. St. Augustine's father, Patricius, was not a believer. He did not worship Christ, but Augustine's mother, Monica, did worship Christ. But through Monica's holiness... Through her love for her husband, through her respect, her pure conduct, her submission, Patricius, her husband, eventually came to know Christ and eventually came to believe. Monica wanted her husband to know Christ more than she wanted her own rights and more than she wanted her own freedom. Now, in that day and age, it was easier for a husband to exploit and abuse his wife than it is today. Although exploitation and abuse of wives by their husbands is still far too common. But that is the risk that the believing spouse takes when they commit to holiness and commit to submission to an unbelieving spouse. If you, as a male or female, husband or wife, submit to your unbelieving spouse, honor them, serve them, strive for holiness, there's a good chance that you're going to get taken advantage of. There's a good chance you're going to get walked on. But Peter says the potential reward is great. Because he says that through your holiness, that hardened, unbelieving spouse may be one to Christ without a word. Imagine going to Monica, St. Augustine's mother, and asking her, you know, your husband Patricius didn't always believe in Christ. He didn't always treat you well. He didn't always treat you with respect. Sometimes he took advantage of you. Sometimes he walked all over you. But was it worth going through that, knowing that he came to know Christ? I think Monica would say, yeah, it was worth it. It was worth the pain. It was worth the suffering. It was worth the hardship for all those years, knowing that my husband now knows Christ. That's what Peter's talking about. So in all three contexts that he mentions, institutions, 
marriage, and even an unjust situation like that of a master and slave. The same rule applies in all of us, that holiness is our best form of evangelism. But again, in all three contexts, holiness and submission may lead to suffering. If you submit to an evil government or a wicked slave owner or an unbelieving spouse, you may find yourself oppressed. You may find yourself dealing with great pain. But in those situations, it's comforting to know that our suffering is not pointless. Because no suffering we experience as we strive for holiness is ever in vain. So if you allow yourself to suffer at the hands of those who hate in order that those very same people might ultimately be saved, then you're actually in good company. Because right smack in the middle of all these examples, we see Peter point our eyes to Christ. Back to chapter 2, starting in verse 21. Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christ himself suffered unjustly at the hands of a wicked governor. And even though he's the son of God, he suffered like nothing more than a slave. And he did it all for his bride, the church, that she might be saved. How could he possibly submit himself to all that suffering? How could he possibly subject himself to that kind of pain and that kind of mistreatment? It's because he trusted God, the one who judges justice. And it's no coincidence that Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. Pilate knew that something was different about him. It's no coincidence that the Roman centurion was amazed by Jesus as he watched him die. It's no coincidence that throughout the pages of history, many a non-believer has been moved to repentance and faith at the sight of a Christian being burned at the stake. At the sight of a Christian suffering for their faith. None of those things are coincidences. Because holiness in the midst of suffering is one of our greatest forms of evangelism. And we can suffer. We can be holy. And we can submit to pain and injustice because ultimately we know that God judges justice. And we do have an inheritance. And we do have a reward. And we do have hope. So may we be holy as Christ is holy, even when times are hard. When we suffer, whether it's at the hands of an unjust government or a wicked master or an unbelieving spouse, What are we often tempted to do? We're tempted to fight back, revile, threaten, fight fire with fire. And yet, with the example of Christ, we see that Jesus didn't do any of those things. 
Instead, he suffered well. He suffered in a manner that was faithful and holy. And through his holiness in the midst of suffering, we have been saved. So in a world that may hate us, in a world where people don't know how to submit to hardship at all, in a world where people don't know what the example of Christ looks like, our following in his footsteps, our following his example, will say far more about the legitimacy of our faith than any word that we could ever speak. And through our suffering, through our faithfulness, through our holiness, as Peter said, someone may be one to Christ without a single word. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the kindness and the mercy and the grace that you show us that we do not deserve. Father, thank you for your word, every single bit of it. And yet, a passage like this can be hard to read because you tell us to submit. You tell us to potentially be willing to suffer. And that's not easy to take in. And yet, Father, I pray that we would heed your call, that we would care more about following the example of Christ, that we would care more about proclaiming the excellencies of Christ than we do about our own rights and our own comforts and our own desires. So, Father, be with us as we leave this place. I know many of us are going to go to different situations, different relationships, different contexts in their own lives where they might be suffering. And so, Father, when we face those hardships, I pray that we would follow the example of Christ and that people would notice it. And that those who say horrible things about believers would be silenced. That we would let our holiness do the talking. And that our holiness would speak far louder than words. But thank you for what we read, verses 21 through 25, that incredible passage about what Christ did. We are called to be holy because Christ is holy. And we have been made holy. Because of what Christ did for us. His blood shed on the cross. So Father, help us to live like the people who we already are. To be the people who you've made us to be. Because that will bring us the most joy. And will bring you the most joy. We love you. We ask this all in Christ. Let's stand together as we sing. And then we'll transition to our closing prayer.
there's one thing you take from 1 Peter 2, 11 through chapter 3, verse 7, it's probably chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, the example of Christ. And one of the lines in that passage that is so important is when it says that Jesus suffered and he went through everything he went through for sinners like us because he entrusted himself to God who judges justice. And every single one of us as believers, we can have that same confidence, that same hope. That when hardships come, when difficulties present themselves, when suffering even arrives as a result of our faith in Christ, we ultimately entrust ourselves to God who judges justice. And so we have an eternal hope. We have an eternal reward and eternal inheritance that we look forward to. But if you're not a believer in Christ, you might not have that same confidence. You might not have that same joy, that same hope of entrusting yourself to God who judges justice. So if you do not have that hope, that joy, that reward to look forward to, I hope you'll talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to answer your questions, happy to pray with you. And as we leave, just spend the coming week reflecting on what Christ did for you. It's so easy to read it in verses 21 through 25. Come back to it, read it, reread it, and find joy and hope and confidence in being constantly reminded of what Christ has done for you. So let's pray together, and then we'll sing. Father, again, we are so grateful for who you are and what you've done in the past and what you're doing right now and what you've promised to do in the future. There are so many things that you're doing right now that we're not even aware of, that we can't even see, and yet we entrust ourselves to you because we know you are wise, we know you are good, we know that you are just and you are holy. And so, Father... Regardless of what life throws at us, through the ups and the downs and the mountaintops and the valleys, we simply entrust ourselves to you. So, Father, as we leave here, I pray that we would live like you, that our lives would show how much we trust you. Thank you for your son who brought us reconciliation and redemption and forgiveness, but that did not come cheap. As Peter mentioned last week, it came to the cost of his blood, which is far more valuable than silver or gold. So, Father, help us reflect on that, what Christ has done for us, what he paid for us, and knowing that we can entrust ourselves to you. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great week.